Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers 100 Pages at a Time using the Library of America as my source material, and I'll give my commentary, my thoughts, some summaries, and some historical context. This episode will be continuing our study of the Harlem Renaissance with our concluding episode on Jesse Redmond Fawcett's Plum Bun. The music you heard starting this episode is Sidney Bechet's uh, Wildcat Blues. I think that's one of his first recordings. The reason I chose Sidney Bechet is this novel ends, Plumbun ends with uh, a somewhat frustrated African-American going to Paris to pursue an art career. And when I was reading that, I thought of Sidney Bechet because Sidney Bechet also left the United States really to escape prejudice and Jim Crow and the, you know, kind of the limitations on his musical career and the lack of appreciation he was getting from the larger public uh, because of his race. And he became like a superstar in Paris, as I understand it, and he really enjoyed life there. So um, it wasn't an uncommon thing. Other artists have, have fled American, or other black artists have fled American racism and, and went, to, went to Paris. Uh, I think um, uh, James Baldwin spent some time in, in Europe, and I think Paris as well. You know, it comes up in one of his novels. So I, I, I thought of Sidney Bechet, and so I, I threw him in there. I, and Sidney Bechet was recording music at the time of the Harlem Renaissance, so uh, he fits the theme anyways. So the final two sections of Jesse Redmond Fawcett's Plum Bun are called Home Again and Market is Done. Remember that these, if you go back to the early episodes on this, you'll know this, but these sections of the novel form kind of a circular narrative. The first part is home, the second part is market, the third part Plum Bun, the fourth part Home Again, and the last part Market is Done. So there's this kind of circular nature to the way the story is constructed. It's also based on a childhood rhyme. That opens up the novel, actually. So let's start with this section, Home Again. In this section, we find that our hero, Angela, who is a African-American woman from Philadelphia, from, a, it's not a biracial family, but there seems to be some white blood in their, in their heritage because Angela is very, very light-skinned, so light-skinned that she passes, able to pass as white in New York City. She has a sister, Virginia, who's, who's not able to pass, but has also moved to New York City. Um, and they aren't really at all able to have an open um, family life because, because Angela is, is faking her identity as white. As we left off, she was just breaking up with her boyfriend, Roger, who is a white man, incredibly racist, and keeping her as essentially a kept mistress. She wanted to marry. She wanted this marriage to Roger to be her way to escape um, financial insecurity, enter into a new social life. But she found through this relationship, her social life was actually being constrained. Her artistic life was being constrained. And so this finally led her to break up with him. Um, and so we find she's being, still being frustrated by her art, even though she broke up with Roger. Meanwhile, her sister who has come to live in New York City, is happy and enjoying her life in New York's African-American community. So this is what the book says about this. In the evenings, she worked on the idea of a picture 
which she intended for her masterpiece. It was summer and the classes at Cooper Union had been suspended, but she meant to return in the fall. Perhaps she would enter the scholarship contest, contest in a successful goal abroad, but the urge to wander was no longer in the ascendant. The prospect of Europe did not seem as alluring now as the prospect of New York had appeared when she lived in Philadelphia. It would be nice to stay put, rooted, to have friends, experiences, and memories. So she's a bit, she doesn't really know what she wants to do, and she's still being frustrated by her art. Virginia, on the other hand, has a much, who's not passing as white, has a much happier social life, and this is pretty much on the same page. Virginia, without making an effort, seemed overwhelmed, almost swamped by friendships, pleasant intimacies, a thousand charming interests. She and Sarah Pentnan, another teacher, had taken up an apartment together. And then there's more on this. So, you know, it's, it's a real big contrast. And this is why Fawcett's novel is very overtly political on this, on, on the dangers of passing, on the dangers more broadly of just rejecting one's background and identity, in this case, particularly African-American identity. Anyways, this is a very uh, key point in the novel for Fawcett. Uh, on page 592 of the Library of America version, we get this quote, Ginny had changed her life and been successful. Angela had changed hers and found pain and unhappiness. Where did the fault lie? Not certainly in her determination to pass from one race to another. Her native good sense assured her that it would have been silly for her to keep on living as she had in Philadelphia, constantly, through no fault of our own, being placed in incredible posi impossible positions, eternally being accused and hounded because she had failed to placard herself, forfeiting old friendships, driven fearfully to be establishing new ones. No, the fault was not there. Perhaps it lay in her attitude towards her friends. She had been too cold and deliberate in her use of them. Certainly she had planned to utilize her connection with Roger, but on this point she had no qualms. He had been paid in full for any advantages which he meant to gain. Right, so that's the central dilemma here. How do you maintain a rich social life? How do you find yourself? How do you find your art? How do you find your, your proper place in the world? And Fawcett seems to suggest here that it's not right by turning away from, from who you are. Angela's losing her friends. Many of these losses are the pretty regular losses people, you know, face in life. Um, through the course of life, people move on, people get new jobs. But Angela's social circle has atrophied, in large part due to her relationship with Roger. Roger, you know, had this really perverted idea of free love in which he could appreciate the freedoms of, of, a, of an open relationship, but Angela basically couldn't because she was being essentially a kept mistress. Um, in this context, her thoughts turn to Anthony. Anthony is, um, in her mind, at this point in the story, a, a white man who she's befriended, but he's poor. And this is why Angela rejected him earlier on. Now, as we're going to see with Anthony, he's a very interesting character because he's also passing as, as white. He's, he's a black man from the South. Um, but she starts to get this idea that he could be a possible companion, but what gets in the way is poverty. Right? And, and, and Angela has to start to work her way past this burden of feeling she can't be with someone who is, is just essentially poor. Now, there may be a bit of desperation in her pining for Anthony, but as we'll find out, they have much more in common than Angela can even guess. She approaches Anthony with her desires, and he revealed to her that they cannot have a relationship because he's colored. 
He then tells the true story of what happened to his family. And this is a really important and touching moment in, in the novel. And it's, of course, very ironic, too, because Anthony thinks he's telling this to, to a white woman. Um, and basically what happened to his father was he was killed in a, in a racist mob in the South. And that's what led him, Anthony, to re, you know, reject his identity. He, he's doing it more out of a legitimate fear of his life and this traumatic experience that happened to him as a child. Angela, perhaps, was passing more out of convenience. So in this sense, they form a nice little contrast, too. When hearing this story, Angela vows to herself that she will reveal her own racial background to Anthony and to the world. And she does eventually come out to Anthony and expose her relationship with Virginia, confessing her guilt at leaving her sister alone at the train station. And as it turns out, this growing relationship between Anthony and Angela is disrupted by the real friendship between Anthony and Virginia, which has been developing, and they end up towards the end of the novel a couple. Now, that doesn't last, and there's kind of a happy ending to the novel when Angela and Anthony sort of end up together. It's, it's you know, we, we just kind of meet them kind of almost in cinematic fashion, you know, at the end of the, in the final scene of the, scene of the book. But, you know, for a while it's disrupted because Anthony is, is seeming to get closer and closer to Virginia. The last part of Angela's old life that needs to be taken care of is the residue of her relationship with Roger. She does not resolve this, I don't think. I, I, you know, I don't think she ever exposes her racial background to him, or, you know, directly. I think that would have been too much hassle. Roger is a pretty virulent and disgusting racist. Um, but instead she approaches it, maybe in a, in the more important way, at the level of the lie at the heart of their relationship, which really wasn't just about race, but really the, the dilemma between free love versus marriage. Uh, Angela wanting to get a marriage, but not being fully honest to Roger about that, and then Roger wanting, you know, a kept mistress and a purely sexual relationship. Um, and that's the true lie at the heart of their, their marriage. Race is just kind of uh, on the boundaries of that. Although in general, she hints that she'd want to have more authenticity between her and her lovers. So that kind of resolves the whole uh, Roger storyline. Here's what she says. Oh, Roger, Roger, I wouldn't consider it. No, when I marry, I want a man, a man, a real one, not afraid to go on his own. Some people may revive dead ashes, but not you and I. I'd never be able to trust you again. I'm sick of secrets and playing games with human relationships. I'm going to take my friendship straight hereafter. Please go. I've had a hard summer and I'm very tired. And besides, I want to work. So there, with this, she breaks up with, with Roger. And it doesn't involve, as I already said, it doesn't involve her uh, telling, telling Roger that she, he's been with a black woman for a number of years. And this allows her to see her family openly, to see Harlem in new ways, and, the, and she starts to see Harlem in ways that begin to spark her creativity. Quote, this is page 649 to 650. Although she no longer intended to cast her lot with Virginia, she made no further efforts to set up barriers between herself and colored people. Let the world take her as it would. If she were in Harlem, in company with Virginia and Sarah Penton, she went out to dinner to the noisy, crowded, friendly, wide dining halls, to Gert's Tea Room, into the clean, inviting drugstore for rich Sundays. Often, too, she went shopping with her friends into the theater, and she met with Ashley and Martha. 
But she was careful in this company to avoid contact with people whose attitude on the race question was unknown or definitely antagonistic. Harlem intrigued her. It was a wonderful city. It represented, she felt, the last word in racial pride, pride, integrity, and even self-sacrifice. Here were people of the very high intellectual type, exponents of the realist and most essential refinement, living cheek by jowl with coarse or ill-bred or even criminal, certainly indifferent members of the race. Of course, some of this propinquity was due to the outer pressure, and there was present to a hidden consciousness of race duty, something which translated said, Perhaps you should do. Perhaps you should pull me down a little from the height which you have climbed, which I have climbed. But on the other hand, perhaps I'm helping you to rise. Um, so she starts to see Harlem in new ways, and she sees a mission for herself in in Harlem. And that's 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 a big deal for for Angela, who's been pretty rootless for much of the novel. That that brings us to the final section of the novel called "Market Is Done." And it resolves the novel fairly nicely, I think. Angela is working on her art. By accepting her identity and her racial responsibility, she finds new creativity and potential. She becomes a black artist. Uh, she's eventually convinced by Ginny and her friends to go to Paris to pursue her studies. Uh, there's a subplot about racial politics and the awarding of grants and things and, and, and Angela kind of establishes herself as a bold, courageous character in that, in that scene, too. But ultimately, she's convinced to go to Paris. Um, anyways, that's how the novel ends. Angela goes to Paris to work her art. While there, she notices, she, she gets a notice that Anthony is coming to visit her, to see her. And in the final scene of the novel is Angela seeing Anthony in Paris. And there's a heavy suggestion that their future is together. So that more or less does it for Plumbun. I would have to say that this is my least favorite so far of the Harlem Renaissance novels. Um, but I still find my, I could still see myself revisiting this for a variety of reasons. I think the core question of the novel that it explores are very interesting. One is that is it right to exploit the color line by passing? Or Another way of saying this is, is, is it a lie of a mission to not reveal one's racial background in a racist society? Angela can pass, but her sister cannot. This is, we're reminded of again and again in the novel. By passing, is Angela exploiting, exploiting white privilege or simply avoiding prejudice? And I don't think this, this is quite answered at any point in the novel. And I don't think Fawcett is trying to propose an answer to this problem. What is being question is on another level, you know, is passing getting in the way of one's true mission in life, or getting in the way of art, in particular in Angela's case? The second question, and this is the one that I think is more clearly answered, is that does one need to be honest with one's identity to live a happy, creative, and fully fleshed out life and social life? This is where I may depart from Fawcett's argument. I think at the end of the day, this, maybe this is what's bothering with me. I, is, I think at the end of the day, there's no true authentic self in any of us. We all wear masks. Now, of course, some of those masks are given to us by society and by our culture. But if we were to take off all the masks we wear, the mask of father, the mask of student, the mask of waiter, you know, if we take off all the masks, there's really nothing left. I, and I guess I'm coming out here as a bit of an existentialist in the, in the Sartrean mold. You know, we're masks all the way down. Our identity is a mixture of social construction, which is how we see ourselves and how we're trained to act 
based on our identity. And performance, or, you know, a bit of performativity. And I'll, again, sometimes that performance is fitting to social standards and customs of culture. Sometimes it's based on our, our role as whether, you know, perhaps, you know, part of the day we're a father, part of the day we're a boss, part of the day maybe we're a worker. You know, and that, now, yeah, we're not totally free in choosing all these masks and the identities, but we do have a choice to how we perform those. So I don't buy that Angela would be incapable of being a good artist unless she came to terms with being black in a white society. Fawcett's way of dealing with this question comes off to me a bit moralistic, suggesting that there is a true self that Angela is denying, and to be a good artist, she has to embrace that, that true self. You know, she, she even gets the good man at the end as a reward for making the right choices. So it's pretty obvious to me what, what Fawcett's trying to do here. And, and the fact that she gives the main character a reward that in many ways is unjustified and unearned. I mean, she, I mean, what did she really do to earn Anthony? Her whole approach to him was kind of, well, I, I can't be with Roger anymore, so I'll pick this guy. And, um, I don't know. So that some of that stuff kind of bothered me about, about the story. Um, anyways, but that kind of does it for my, my, my summary, my review, and, and kind of point out the themes. Um, as always, when I finish up with a novel, I like to identify the major themes and, and tropes. Um, my goal in doing this with each book with each book is to eventually dream up or, or imagine, I don't think I'm ever going to do this literally, but to imagine kind of an index of the themes of American literature and then have kind of the tools to cross-reference them. So we can kind of, you know, stack up these texts around certain themes and allow us to see what kind of themes kind of run most broadly through American literature. And of course, that's a long-term goal, but uh, by kind of summarizing what I think are the major themes of each work, we get closer to that goal. Um, how many do I have here? Like 10 or so. Um, anyway, so the first is, is passing. Uh, and to this, the color line. The color line has been a theme in every Harlem Renaissance novel, and it's certainly a big one here. But to this is added the, the theme of passing. Um, we've seen the color line work both uh, between whites and blacks, and between white society and, and, and spaces like Harlem. We've seen it work out in Home to Harlem on the trains between the black workers and the white passengers. Uh, and we've seen the color line affect relationships within the black community, you know, especially between uh, darker-skinned people and lighter-skinned people. And this will come up again in the in the next novel in this series, The Black or the Berry, um, which is kind of, in many ways, the inverse of, of Plum Bun. So, yeah, the passing and the color line is a big theme here. Um, a little bit more strongly here, even between white and black, because Angela spends so much of the novel really in white society, uh, looking at her own identity through the eyes of white society. And she spends much of the novel in the relationship with a, with a pretty open racist. So that kind of gives another level of this theme. Uh, a second theme, I guess, is gender roles and, I guess, sex roles connected to gender. Um, the... One of the main male characters of this novel, Roger, he just wants sex, he's rich, and he takes advantage of his, his wealth to have kind of a playboy's life. 
And then his expectation for a woman is to kind of be this cat mistress, to be available to him sexually whenever he wants. Um, of course, we have good men too. Anthony is kind of the quote-unquote good man, but he has to be poor. So um, that's uh, kind of a level of class playing in here, but I'll get to class in a little bit. Um, yeah. So this, actually, this is a really big theme. So I'm, I'm, I'm not struggling for things to say about it, but I'm struggling to, to limit what I want to say here. We can even go back to Angela's parents who have pretty strict gender roles within that family. Um, and I think color actually kind of plays a role in that um, because she's trying to be elegant. She Even when she goes out, Angela's mother, that is, when she goes out, she sometimes passes at white, kind of on a day-to-day -day level. Um, you know, she doesn't live her life as a white woman, but sometimes she will, you know, at the store or something, passes passes white. But she was also working class, and she was a a washerwoman. And there seems to have been some kind of a little bit of tension uh, between that kind of working class identity and her efforts to publicly present herself in a very elegant way. Maybe she's kind of passing across class lines too a little bit. Um, okay, the next theme, and this is, I guess, related to that, is free love versus marriage. Uh, there's several conversations in the book directly addressing this issue. Um, yeah, the 20s, the period this novel was written, was a, was a mini sexual revolution in American history. It's the era of the flapper, of course. It's the era of the cabaret. Um, and we've seen in other novels in this series, such as Home to Harlem, you know, the open commercialization of sexuality, a lot of openish relationships, a lot of uh, serial monogamy even. So that's in the backdrop of this. And Angela, her goal is still marriage. And she's kind of, when she crosses over into white society, she's confronting this free love culture and she's a little bit uncomfortable with it. Um, of course, the relationship between Roger and her is really the, the way this theme is explored more directly. Now, in the end of the novel, she finds the right man and she, she's presumably going to get married, so, turning her back on not just white society, but also the free love community of, of New York. Another theme is the art scene. We, we have some interesting examinations of the art scene. A lot of Angela's friends kind of come from the art community, uh, especially in the last section of the novel, the one I kind of glossed over. We have some of the politics of the art community there, um, you know, the way travel plays a major role in that so we got the art scene here it's kind of fun to to get a window into that i think this might be the first time in this series that we actually get a oh no we had it with vandover and the brute to the art scene um yeah actually another another character in vandover and the brute go back to my series on frank norris and you can see my comments on vandover and the brute there was a character who also kind of lost himself and couldn't be a good artist because he lost himself um, another theme, mobility and migration. Again, this is something that's come up pretty much in every novel of the Harlem Renaissance series. Of course, the Harlem Renaissance itself is a product of this mass migration, uh, the Great Migration that happened during World War I, where a million to two million African Americans left the South to northern cities. You had hundreds of thousands of more joining the army, going to Europe and moving around. All of that, you have Caribbean migrations to the United States at the time. You know, Claude McKay, the writer of Home to Harlem, was a Caribbean writer. 
So you have this mobility and uh, migration shaping these creation of these new communities and uh, of mostly of migrants. And that's what may, kind of makes Harlem so interesting is you have uh, African-Americans from all over America from different class backgrounds, you know, meshing into one area. And it's actually quoted a section in this book, just in this episode, that, that suggests that, that kind of element of, of Harlem life. Next, uh, sisterly love. Um, yeah, and I'm pretty sure this is the first really close look we get at sisterly love. Most of our other characters have been only childs or their sisters and brothers don't really play a role in the story. Here we have a really close relationship between these two sisters. Of course, they're very different. They have different uh, levels of freedom that, that uh, due to their, their skin color. Angela's light-skinned, Virginia's dark-skinned, so that makes it, you know, that kind of puts some strain on their relationship. But in the end, they, you know, there's there's true sisterly love here, and it really does influence how Angela makes her decisions. And she feels real guilt about the way she treats her sister at sometimes in the novel. Um, class, class is a big part. Uh, now, I wouldn't say Angela and Virginia were poor, um, but their mother was working class. She was like a, you know, she was working. Her father was a work was working too. Um, they had a home and they were able to inherit a little bit of money. It wasn't a huge amount. It would be a modest uh, inheritance by by our standards today. Um, but I think class works out in a much deeper way here. In really, again, with her relationship with Roger, where she's from the lower class and Roger's uber wealthy, super wealthy, and a big thing motivating Angela in passing and in her relationship with Roger is to escape a life of leisure, basically to have a, or to escape a life of, of drudgery and work and, and to live a life of leisure. So that's that kind of effort at, at, at using marriage at, at class mobility is a theme here. Uh, racial violence. We have a lot of episodes of just racism. Again, with Roger, uh, you know, getting some black people kicked out of a restaurant in, in New York. That's a pretty nasty one. But the biggest racial violence we have is in backstories, in Anthony's backstory. His father was killed in essentially a lynch mob in the South. And so that is in the backdrop of this. And we almost get a sense that there we almost have a justifiable, for Fawcett, a justifiable reason for passing. It's really this kind of fear of racial violence. Um, Angela, who doesn't have that same background, is passing more for convenience. And I, I think there's a little bit of unfair judgment um, in Fawcett's way of presenting these two characters. Um, but certainly we have racial violence in the backdrop of, of Anthony's story. Um, honesty. The morality of honesty. And again, I think this is part of Fawcett's point is to suggest the importance of being honest about oneself and one's own um, background. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I, I've kind of belabored the point on that, but it, it shows up as a really strong theme of the novel. Honesty as, as a morality, whether it's honesty to your family, honesty to yourself, honesty to the people in your life, your lovers, your friends. Um, and then the question of how much is omission uh, a sin against honesty. And the final theme I want to mention is, is Judaism. And surprisingly, Judaism comes off as a theme in this novel. 
picked the character of Rachel. She was kind of a the upstairs neighbor when Angela was living as a as his kept mistress of Roger. And you know, there we have another kind of cross-cultural relationship. Uh, Rachel was a Jewish woman, and her boyfriend was a, a Gentile and rather poor. And that, you know, that relationship had its own struggles over over that. And it's it's just a brief snapshot we get of of Jewish life in New York and how the same kind of tensions over interracial dating or what well, intercultural dating in the case of uh, Jew and Gentile, but it, there's a, it's paralleled, I think, consciously by Fawcett to um, interracial relationships uh, between blacks and whites. So that's that's some of the themes in the novel. I'm sure there's a lot more. So if you can think of any I've missed, any major ones I missed, please comment or send me an email. You can. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Um, if you enjoyed listening to this, please rate, subscribe, and share this with your friends. I you know, would love to build up a bigger audience for this podcast, and I'd really love to, like to hear from all of you. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Our next novel is The Blacker the Berry by, oh, what's his name? Uh, Wallace Thurman, The Black or the Berry, and that will be our next episode. It is, in many ways, the direct opposite of the novel we just read, looking at, a, at an incredibly dark-skinned woman um, who is struggling with racism within uh, African-American communities over, you know, against darker-skinned women in particular. Yeah, there's, a, there's a theme in that novel that basically women have it tougher if they're darker-skinned. Um, so we'll talk about Wallace Thurman. We'll talk about the black or the berry in the next episode. Thanks again for listening. See you in 100 pages.